When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Wednesday, October 17th. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're giving some much-needed media attention to the quiet but furious nationwide fight against pipelines. The most famous pipeline resistance fight in recent history is the one against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock. And sadly, it didn't end the way activists had hoped. While the Obama administration blocked construction of the pipeline, the Trump administration reversed that decision. This campaign got a lot of media attention, but it's not the only fight happening. From Appalachia to Louisiana, there are battles to stop pipelines happening right now. All over the country, activists are organizing and putting themselves in the path of bulldozers. Today, I sat down with one of those activists, Madeline Fitch, to learn more. So Madeline, this question might seem a little bit basic to you, but walk us through what the major issues or risk factors are when it comes to pipelines. What are you fighting against and what are you fighting for? Sure. I think that um, it's clear from the title Water Protector that became popularized during the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline that um, most people who are fighting pipelines in their communities are concerned about water, risks to water sources. And that can come during the construction process itself. Um, and it can also, water is also at risk from leaking, from pipelines leaking. And then people are also concerned about accidents happening from new higher pressure gas being pumped through lines and explosions happening, what's called the incineration zone. And so accidents happening in an industry that's like not very well regulated and using a lot of new products on old lines and that kind of thing. And then people are also worried about their homes and the places that they love being destroyed by the industry. So that's a big thing that people are fighting for. They're fighting to protect their homes and the places that they love and the water that they rely on. Yeah. And that's your story that fighting these pipelines is very personal to you. You live in one of those incineration zones 100 feet from a pipeline, the Tennessee gas pipeline on the Ohio-West Virginia border. Can you talk a little bit about that local fight and how you first got involved in uh, the broader national fight against pipelines and, and how it started locally for you? 
Sure. So like a lot of people, um, we live pretty near a natural gas pipeline that was put into the ground sometime in the 60s. And we don't think too much about it. And then one day we got a letter in the mail saying that the line was going to be repurposed. And that sort of made us start doing more of our research. And we found that saying it would be repurposed meant that they would be planning to put um, high pressure liquefied fracked gas through an old line that's referred to as vintage pipe. So like the pipe going by our house, it's supposed to be buried four feet deep, but there's places in our area where it's actually surfacing above the ground. There was an explosion about um, in 2011, five miles from where we live. Luckily, it, nobody lived close enough so that nobody was hurt, but um, homes were destroyed. We felt the ground shake where we live. So uh, that got us pretty worried. And we started talking to neighbors about the industry and sort of finding out you know, pretty much kind of how predatory the industry is and how uh, pipeline company employees will come by and really treat people differently depending on income or perceived socioeconomic status. And that was pretty eye-opening. And it was eye-opening for me all along the line when we talked to our neighbors, people from a lot of different walks of life and political orientation had no love for the pipeline and had seen how predatory the industry could be. So what we did first did is just got our neighbors just checked in to see if they had um, received the same mail that we had received. And a lot of people hadn't even received the mail. So I don't think that the company was doing a very good job getting in touch with people to let them know what was potentially happening where they live. But where we live, it's not very organized and we're not quite sure what to do. Because of that, we helped make sure people filed public comments on time. I think the company was depending on nobody really knowing what was going on and nobody filing public comments. We got people to file public comments and the line was, has been postponed for a while, but it's back on track now. So we're waiting to see what will happen. But that got me more alert to pipeline struggles. Um, and then Standing Rock happened and I took my kids there, our family visited there. And then the Mountain Valley pipeline and the Atlantic Coast pipeline are happening very close to us in um, Virginia and West Virginia. So that got me more alert to um, trying to learn from other regional Appalachian pipeline sites. Yeah, let's stay local for one second and just talk about the fight happening right around you in Appalachia. In your piece, you talk a lot about tree sits. Can you tell us what that is and sort of paint a picture for us about what that kind of activism looks like on the ground? It's the kind of activism that I first learned about from forest defenders in sort of the early 2000s and in Oregon, people I think were familiar with like the fight to save the redwoods. So people would climb up in a tree so high up that they can't be apprehended by police or industry personnel and live on a platform, bring supplies up with them and live on a platform in a tree. And by being there with their body, they're stopping the tree from being cut. And so when, the, when those tree sits are in the path of a pipeline, they're stopping the easement from being cleared so pipeline construction can't take place. And if a tree sit is tethered to trees around it, it can protect more, more area. By the time people were doing tree sits in West Virginia, local community groups had been fighting the permit process for the pipeline, talking to their neighbors, talking to legislators, going to uh, water control board meetings, and all kinds of more conventional types of activism. And when the pipeline was permitted anyway, um, people decided to, to do tree sitting. And a lot of different people um, decided to do that. 
And right now, there are tree sits happening around you? I live in Appalachia, but we have to drive a, a few hours to get to where the most current tree sits are happening. So there have been tree sits almost continuously since February in Appalachia, um, coming from a lot of different people, you know, some with very little climbing experience, some with a lot. Um, people just, I think, have felt like it's time to take matters into their own hands. And one very effective thing about the tree sitting is that you know, the companies tend to operate even when they're in violation. And we've seen this time and time again with pipelines that they'll kind of just go as far as they can and consider to violation fees to be kind of cost of doing business. Once the pipeline's built, not much can be done. And so I think one strategic thing about having people taking direct action against the pipelines, making blockades and trees is, is to hold off construction while other people are doing other things to fight the pipeline. So most recently, there was a ruling, I think it was October 2nd, where the Circuit Court of Appeals actually ruled in favor of the Mountain Valley advocates who were saying that the Mountain Valley pipeline permit to first streams and river crossings was not uh, proper in the first place. And that halted construction, at least for a while, but the tree sitters had been in place that whole time so that they could actually literally physically hold off construction um, while other organizers were still working on the ground. So people are working in a lot of different, a lot of different ways, all kinds of different people. And I'm learning from that because that fight is very organized. In my region of Appalachia, I'm, I think we're still trying to figure out what to do about that pipeline that runs by my house. You know, we're a few counties away and sort of trying to figure out next steps. So it was important for me to learn from other communities fighting pipelines. Your piece really highlights that this is happening in Appalachia around you locally, and it's also happening across the country. Um, there's sort of unseen activism all around pipelines in many, many places. And you talked about something that I found very interesting, which is sort of the complicated dynamics and differences between the battle that you are a part of in Appalachia and those battles that are being led and fought more directly by indigenous people and that some of the language and ideology is different while often the end goals are the same. Can you talk a little bit about those dynamics and, and what you've learned from them? Well, sure. I mean, I think it's clear that one of the biggest um, ways that we see ongoing colonization and neocolonial land grabs is through big industry, not respecting indigenous sovereignty and rights to land. And so the roadmaps of fighting pipelines on this continent and internationally is really, that's been from indigenous organizers. Um, and it started before Standing Rock and it's continued after Standing Rock. So I think um, it's safe to say that most people who or non-native who are fighting pipelines have, have like learned it from, from native organizers. And most of that organizing is specifically a stance against colonization in, in a very real way, against more taking of the land and treating indigenous people as expendable. And in my opinion, that stance leads to a, a much larger sort of analysis of the problems with pipeline construction. It leads a different understanding of our relationships to land and water. Um, and so that's open, that's there. But I think sometimes settlers who are fighting pipelines are looking at things in a more limited way, like it's just about my private property. Um, and that's creating barriers in some ways 
to solidarity, where solidarity, as I would see it, is, is pretty necessary. And I was really honored in my piece to be able to interview organizers from Lily Levy Camp who are fighting Bayou Bridge Pipeline. So Sherry Foytlin is a really inspiring person to talk to. And um, Mark Tilson, who works with the Indigenous Peoples Power Project and has been fighting the Bayou Bridge Pipeline and also Line 3, but who got started fighting pipelines at Standing Rock. And to hear them talk about possibilities for solidarity, but that the bottom line for that really needs to be an understanding that we are all on stolen land and that our relationship to land and water has a much larger integrity than sort of private ownership or, or settler ownership. We have to have a, a larger and stronger analysis if we want to be able to work together. And then it was also inspiring to me to talk to um, Appalachian organizers, non-Native organizers, and, and, and see the rhetoric changing. So the kind of like private property rights rhetoric, I'd see in real time the banners and the uh, messaging changing to really be about protect what you love, fight for your home, and so the emphasis being more um, more on that. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's really interesting and really inspiring. Um, I want to go back to these pipeline companies and some of their rhetoric. And something that you hear a lot is they say that accidents are rare and they sort of justify their work through that phrase, accidents are rare, which seems really subjective. And you on the ground have seen something different and kind of understand that language to be manipulative. Can you talk about whether or not accidents are really rare and what that even means? Sure. I mean, that's a really big question for someone like me. I'm raising two small children 200 feet from a a pipeline that's being repurposed for high-pressure gas. So I get mail from the company and um, from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission with a beautiful field of waving clovers that says everything's fine, everything's great, accidents are rare. And I would like to believe that because that's where I live and I want to feel safe where I live and I want my water to be safe. But unfortunately, the more research I do and the more I talked in the article, I talked to Carl Weimer, the executive director of the Pipeline Safety Trust, and I talked to a policy analyst for the National Resources Defense Council and just sort of looking up doing my own research. It's pretty clear that anyone can claim that accidents are rare without really having to back that up. It's a completely subjective thing to say. So. I guess what I'll say is probably for an oil executive who's making a lot of money, it's considered cost of doing business if there's an occasional leak or um, an explosion. And to people for whose homes are ruined, who are experiencing sickness and loss of life, or who will, it doesn't seem like accidents are rare. And I think the growing science around it, and there's good articles about this, is that pipelines eventually all leak. It's not a, a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it, it kind of goes along with the same ethic that this country has about big industry in uh, lots of areas, which is that the burden of proof is on the little guy. The burden of proof is not on the companies to show that what they're doing is safe. The burden of the proof is on individual people, um, small communities to try to prove that what the company is doing isn't safe. It's up to me to make sure that I have baseline water testing, which is very expensive, and then to keep checking back on that to see if what the company is doing is safe. That's not how it is all over the world. That's just something that we think of as normal here in the U.S. Yeah, that comparative perspective is important. I want to go back to the question of media. Your story jumped out at me because since Standing Rock, I had not read very much about 
anti-pipeline activism. And I wanted to ask you, you're on the ground, why do you think there's so little media attention given to this subject? So I do think that there is media attention, there's steady media attention if you look for it. But I also think I see things being shared urgently among organizers. So like on social media, a video was posted yesterday where Annie Whitehat at Biobridge, at the Biobridge uh, resistance camp at the Lily Levee camp said that two water protector boats were sunk by an ETP boat, an energy transfer boat, and put a call out for more people to go and provide solidarity and support at camp if they can. So there's a lot of call outs for support coming from BioBridge right now, which people can find out about on Facebook. And I think that's one of the answers to the media question is that um, there's a lot of social media network uh, networking going on uh, around these fights. And the different sites are sharing each other's um, media calls for sure, or calls to action. Yeah. Um, And my last question is kind of a difficult question that you yourself posed at the very end of your piece, um, which is just when you're up against such enormous, wealthy, powerful companies, do you think that you can win this fight? Yeah, that's a question that I ask people in the article because I'm curious, people who are really dedicating their lives to pipeline resistance, what is their relationship to the question of winning? And there are some pretty interesting responses to it. One thing I found really compelling is just the, first of all, the imperative that people have. Like, this is not an abstract thing. This is people's homes, people's families, people's water. So people really don't have any choice but to fight for it. And also, I think it's compelling that, you know, we win by persistence. It's important to show that the pipeline companies that we're going to be there and resist every step of the way. Wherever they go, there is going to be community resistance to it. And I think the places where we've seen pipelines be defeated, it's because that there's been so much opposition that it's just become untenable for them to continue operating. So I have to believe that there is hope for winning in the long term, but I also think that the fight, it just has to happen. It's, um, the fight is, is inevitable. Thank you so much. This was very informative. Thanks for asking me such a good question. You can read the full story on vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Friday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.